The fear caused her palms to sweat and her mouth to go dry. She was angry at the night, angry at herself. Do you mean to tell me that you were lurking in that cavern all the time? Kit demanded. Why didn't you strike him? Stab him from behind before he had a chance to change his form. He obviously had no idea you were there. Useless, Sir Nigel replied. My sword has no bite. Kit swore beside herself with rage. A fine guardian you make, she sneered. I am the guardian of the eggs, the knight replied. Those are my orders. And how do you propose to guard them, sir, undead? Say, please, Master Dragon, go away and don't break the pretty eggs? The knight's face darkened, or perhaps the light that flowed from him dimmed, because it seemed that the shadows closed in on them. This is my gash, he said in a low voice. I chose it myself. None laid it on me. But sometimes it is hard to bear. Soon, however, my watch will be over, for good or ill, and I will continue on my long-delayed journey. As for my plan, I will distract the dragon from the front. When his attention is concentrated on me, you will strike. Distract? What are you going to do? A little song and dance? Hush! Sir Nigel lifted his hand in warning. We are close to the chamber. Kit knew well enough where she was. The corridor in which they stood made a turn. A short distance beyond it opened into the huge chamber where the eggs were hidden. Kittyara stood just before that turn. Walk around the jutting rock wall to the right, and she would walk into the chamber. Walk into Immolatus. Kittyara heard the dragon heard his massive tail scraping over the rock, heard his stentorian breathing and the rumbling of the fire burning in his belly. She could smell him, smell the sulfur and the stench of reptile. The smell sickened her, her fear sickened her. She heard the dragon lash his tail against the rock. The corridor in which they stood shuddered. Her body went hot and then cold. Her palms were slippery. She had to continually adjust her grasp on the sword's hilt. Immolatus was talking to the unborn of his enemies, haranguing them in the language of dragons, presumably. Kittyara couldn't understand a word. Now I must go, Sir Nigel said, and she felt his words as a breath on her cheek. She could hear nothing over the dragon's howls and grunts and taunting words that were like the cracking of bones. Await my signal. Don't bother, Kittyara snapped, angry, afraid. Go back to your tomb. Maybe I'll join you. Sir Nigel looked at her long and searchingly. You truly do not understand anything you have seen or heard since you entered this temple? I understand that I have to do this myself, Kit retorted, that I can count on no one but myself, the way it's always been. Ah, that explains it. Sir Nigel raised his hand in salute. Farewell, Kittyara Uthmetar. The light vanished, and Kit was alone, alone in a darkness that was not as dark as she could have wished it, a darkness that was tinged with red 
the fire of the dragon. He left me, Kitiara said to herself, amazed. She had trusted she would be able to shame him into staying. That bastard ghost really left me here to die. A pox upon him, then. His soul to the abyss. Aware that she had to act now, while she was more angry than she was frightened, Kitiara wiped the wet palm of her sword hand upon her leather tunic, clenched her hand around the hilt, and strode through the fire-singed darkness. Emiletus was enjoying himself. He had a right to indulge. He'd earned this moment, paid for it in blood, and he meant to make it last. Besides, he needed time to accustom himself to his dragon form again, revel in the return of his strength and power. He raked his front claws against the ceiling of the cavern, leaving great gouges in the stone. His hind claws dug into the rock, breaking it and tearing it. He would have liked to spread his wings, to stretch the muscles. Unfortunately, the chamber, though large enough to accommodate him, was not large enough to accommodate his full wingspan. He made do with lashing his tail, feeling in satisfaction the very bones of the mountain tremble at his might. Immolatus spoke to the unborn of his enemies, knowing that somewhere his enemies could hear him. They would sense his presence in the nest of their young. They would know what he intended, and they would be powerless to stop him. He felt the parents' anguish, their helpless dread, and he laughed at them and mocked them and made ready to destroy their children. He had planned to incinerate the unborn dragons. Indeed, that is what he intended to do. The fire in his belly had very nearly gone out, having been nothing but a measly spark in his human form, a spark he had to constantly nurse to maintain. Needing time to stoke the fire, he determined that, in the beginning at least, he would crack the eggs with his claws and maybe even suck out the yolks of a dozen or so. Anticipating the pleasure, he recited the catalogue of his wrongs and gloated over his revenge, savoring every moment in order to relive it later in his hundred-year-long dreams. Immolatus was enjoying himself so much that he paid little attention to the speck of light shining silver-white at his feet. He thought the light nothing more than one of the myriad silver scales left scattered about by his enemies. He shifted his head slightly, hoping the light would go away, for he found that it irritated him, like a bit of chaff caught in his eye. The light remained. He could not rid himself of it, and was forced to pause in his recitation to deal with it. He looked at the light closely, though it hurt him to do so, and as he looked, he saw it take form and shape. He recognized it. One of Paladine's flunkies. A salamnic night for me to kill, Immolatus chuckled. What joy! I could have wished for nothing more to increase my pleasure. Who says my queen has abandoned me? No, she has given me this gift. The knight said no word. He drew his sword from its antique scabbard. The dragon blinked, half-blinded. The silver light was a silver lance, stabbing through his eye. 
The pain was excruciating and growing worse. I would play with you longer, worm, Immolatus growled, but I find that you begin to annoy me. He made a swipe at the knight with a slashing claw, intending to rip through the armor, impale him. The knight did not attack. Seeing certain death descending on him, he raised his sword hilt first to heaven. Paladine, god of my order and of my soul, the knight called out. Witness that I have been faithful to my vow. Ridiculous knight, Simulatus thought, his claws stabbing downward. Vowing, praying, even after their fickle god had abandoned them just as my queen abandoned me, then returned to demand homage and service and worship, as if she deserved it. Searing pain pierced the dragon's insides. His slashing blow went wild, missed its target. Furious, Immolatus turned to see what had hit him. The worm, Uthmetar, that annoying blood-sucking worm inflicted on him by that human excrement, Ariacus. Kitiara had been both pleased and astonished to see the ghost reappear. The sight of the knight lent her courage. Creeping around the dragon's left hind leg, she struck the dragon from behind, driving her sword with both hands deep into the dragon's flank. She aimed for a vital organ. Uncertain of dragon anatomy, she hoped to hit the heart hoped for a quick kill. Her sword glanced off a scale. Her stab struck deep, but it struck a rib, nothing vital. Damn! Kitiara yanked free the bloody sword, and guessing that her time was limited, made a desperate attempt to stab again. Attacked from the front and on his flank, Immolatus returned his gaze to what he deemed the more dangerous foe, the accursed Salamnic. His lashing tail would deal with the worm. Quick as a whip-snap, the dragon's tail curled and released. The tail hit Kitiara full in the chest, a blow that sent her tumbling, rolling head over heels back down the corridor. Her sword flew from her hand. Immolatus would finish off this night, then he would finish off the worm. Requite my faith, my God, the knight was yelling at the empty heavens. Grant that I may fulfill my vow. The knight flung his sword into the air. A stupid move, but one that was popular among knights. They were always hoping to poke out an eye. The blade blazed with a silver fire. Emilatus made the standard defense, jerked his head up and back. Sir Nigel had not aimed for the dragon's eye. The blade, blazing silver, soared high into the air, struck the ceiling of the cavern. The sword that had no bite plunged deep into the rock. The dragon laughed. He lowered his head, jaws snapping, intending to seize the knight in his crushing jaws. His fangs opened and closed over nothing but air. The knight remained standing calmly, gazing upward, his hands raised in a salute, or perhaps in prayer. Behind him the eggs of gold and silver dragons lay nestled in a chamber of rock. Above him 
the ceiling started to crack. A large chunk of rock fell, struck Immolatus on the head. Another followed, and another, and then a veritable cascade of rocks plunged down, threatening to bury the dragon. Sharp stones hit his body, wounding him, bruising him. One tore through a wing, another crushed a toe. Stunned by the blows raining down on him, Immolatus sought shelter. He retreated back down the corridor, trusting that its ceiling would hold, would not collapse around him. He crouched there as the ground shook beneath his feet. Dust and sharp shards filled the air, ricocheted off the cavern's wall. He couldn't see, could barely breathe. And then the shaking ended. The avalanche ceased. The dust cleared. Immolatus opened an eyelid cautiously, peered around. He was afraid to move, afraid that he would bring down the entire mountain. The Salamnic night was gone, buried under a massive rock slide. Gone, too, were the eggs, their chambers sealed closed by tons of rocks and boulders. The unborn dragons were safely beyond Immolatus's reach. Roaring his disappointment and outrage, he belched a blast of fire from his belly against the newly formed rock wall. But all that did was to superheat the granite— caused it to fuse together in a solid mass, impossible to shift. He scrabbled at the wall with a claw, and after much work managed to dislodge a single small boulder, which rolled down the hill of rock and landed on the dragon's foot, hurting him. He glared at the wall. Revenge might be sweet, but it was an awful lot of work. And then there was her dark majesty— she would not be pleased at this turn of events, and though Immolatus might sneer at his goddess and dismiss her as fickle and capricious, deep inside him he feared her wrath. If he had destroyed the eggs, he might have talked his way around her. No use crying over spilt yolks. Having disobeyed her orders and in so doing inadvertently sealed up the eggs where they would be safe until the day when they hatched, and their parents could come free them. Immolatus had the feeling her majesty might be difficult. He had a moment's fleeting hope that the eggs had all been smashed by the fall of the ceiling. But he knew Paladine well of old, knew that the knight's prayer had been heard. The blow that had brought the ceiling down around the dragon's ears had not been struck by any mortal hand. By some fluke, Immolatus himself had escaped the god's anger. He might not be so lucky the next time. As it was, he could feel the mountain continue to shake. It was time to go before Paladine tried again. Immolatus turned to leave by the same way he had entered, only to find the corridor blocked, choked up with debris. The dragon snarled in irritation. He was more annoyed than frightened. Dragons are accustomed to dwelling underground. Their eyes can penetrate the darkness. Their nostrils sniff out the tiniest whiff of air. Immolatus smelled fresh air. He knew there was another opening somewhere. He recalled the map of the temple the worm had drawn for him, recalled another corridor leading up and out, a corridor that led into the accursed temple of Paladine.
If I do nothing else, I'll level that foul blot upon the landscape, Immolatus muttered, flame hissing through his teeth. I'll burn it, and then I'll burn this city. They'll smell the smoke of death in the abyss, and let my queen or any other god try to touch me then. Just let them. Mumbling and grumbling his defiance, he sniffed the fresh air, located its source. Thrusting a clawed hand into the rubble blocking the way, rubble that was not very thick at this point, the dragon cleared it easily. He found the corridor he'd remembered from the map. The corridor was open and clear, remained unaffected by the landslide. But it was a small corridor, a narrow corridor, a man-sized corridor. Immolatus groaned and came near sinking under the weight of his severe disappointment. He would have to take that form again, that hated, heinous form, that weak and puny form, that human form. Fortunately, he would not have to traipse about in the flesh bag too long, only long enough to traverse this corridor, which, if memory of the map served him correctly, was not very long. He pronounced the words of magic, grinding them with his teeth, detesting every one of them, and the transfiguration occurred, painful and humiliating as usual. Immolatus, the red-robed wizard, stood in the midst of the ruin of the corridor. The fabric of his robe immediately stuck to a wound in his side, a wound that his dragon self had barely noticed, but a wound his human self was concerned to see was deep and bleeding freely. Cursing the worm who had inflicted it, Immolatus wondered what had become of her. He glanced around the wreckage, saw no sign of her. He listened, but heard no sound, no moaning, no cries for help, and he assumed that she must be lying under half the mountain by now. Good riddance, he thought, and, pressing his hand against his side, each breath coming in a pain-filled gasp, he entered the corridor, cursing his weak human flesh with every step. Kittyara waited until she no longer heard his footfalls, and then waited to the count of a hundred after that. Certain that he had gone far enough that he would not hear her, she crawled out from beneath the rubble that had saved her life, protected her from the dragon's huge body. Bruised, bleeding from countless cuts, covered with rock dust, exhausted by her fear and her exertions, Kit was fed up with this job. Her ambition was at the ebb. She would have traded the generalship of the dragon armies for a mug of dwarf spirits and a hot bath. She would have walked away from this wretched place here and now, leaving the dragon to do his damnedest, had there been anywhere to walk. Unfortunately, the only way out was the dragon's way out. The path he walked was the path she would have to walk, unless she wanted to remain down here in the dark, trapped inside an unstable mountain, she would have to deal with him. Sir Nigel, she risked calling. There was no answer, no help from that quarter. She had seen him buried beneath the mountain of rock, but his vow was fulfilled. He'd found a way to protect the eggs. A pity he hadn't killed the dragon in the process. 
It was up to her now. She was on her own. As usual. She found her sword partially buried in the rubble, and she still had her knife. Emilatus had his magic, powerful, deadly magic. He was in his vulnerable human form. The path he walked was dark. His back was to her. His real back this time, not an illusion. Kittyara drew her knife from the top of her boot, rubbed the grit from her eyes, spit the dust from her mouth. Entering the corridor, she padded soft-footed after the dragon. Chapter 17 Breaking ranks, the soldiers surged through the open city gates, carrying the battering ram with them. Once inside, temporarily out of danger, they came to a halt, breathless and seething with anger as words spread like flaming dwarf spirits that men in the rear ranks had dropped down dead, with black fletched arrows in their backs. Some in the forward companies actually turned around, headed out the gate, prepared to go back to the field and claim vengeance. Officers shouted, bullied, and tried to restore order, as the citizens of Hope's End watched warily from the walls. They had been told these hardened mercenaries brought salvation, but the first sight of them, howling for blood, left the civilians pale and shaking. The Lord Mayor was put in mind of the old saying, Better the kender in front of you than the kender with his hand in your back pocket. He was clearly regretting that he'd ever opened the gates to these cold-eyed professionals, swearing oaths of death on those who had betrayed them. Shut those gates, the baron shouted from the back of his warhorse. The horse plunged and danced with excitement, nostrils flared, ears laid back, nipping at anyone who came too close. All those wagons back in place, archers to the wall. Those bastards, he yelled to Commander Morgan, who, greatly daring, had caught hold of the horse's bridle. Did you see what they did? Fired at us when our backs were turned. By heavens, I'll find that Commander Kolos and cut out his liver. I'll have it with potatoes and onions. Yes, my lord, I saw, sir. Commander Morgan calmed the horse, calmed the master at the same time. You were right, Baron. I was wrong. I admit it freely. And don't think I'm ever going to let you forget it. <laughs> the Baron roared his manic laugh, which just about finished the terror-stricken citizens. By Kiri Joleth, he added, glowering around him at the stamping, sword-clashing, swearing soldiers of his command. These fools have gone berserk. I'll have order restored, Commander Morgan, now. C Company had been responsible for clearing the barricades from the gates. The battering ram pounding once on the gate had been the signal for C Company to swing the gates wide open. Their two bowmen provided covering fire for their comrades before retreating back inside the city in good order. C Company stood ready, poised for action, keeping themselves free of the tumult. Shut the gates, Master Sinej commanded, hearing the baron's order. Keep everyone inside the city walls. The men of C Company acted swiftly to obey. Some sprang to the gates. 
Others shoved or struck with the flat of their blades those soldiers who had lost all reason and were trying to leave the city in order to revenge their fallen comrades. Stand there, Magere, Sergeant Nemes ordered, posting Caramon in the very center of the road as the men worked to push the heavy wooden gates shut behind him. Don't let anyone pass. Yes, sir. Caramon took up his position, unmindful of enemy arrows which were flying through the slowly closing gate. His massive legs spread to maintain his balance, his arm muscles flexed. Those who tried to get past him were either hurled backward, plucked off their feet, or, as a last extremity, given a gentle buffet on the head intended to restore them to their senses. The gates slammed shut. The flights of arrows ceased as the enemy paused to consider the unlooked-for situation and regroup. What now, sir? Commander Morgan asked. Do we stay here under siege? That depends entirely on Kolos, said the Baron. If you were him, what would you do, Morgan? I'd pull back my troops, establish my supply lines, and wait until everyone in the city starved to death, my lord, Morgan replied. Very good, Commander Morgan, said the Baron. What do you think Kolos will do? Well, my lord, I think he's going to be madder than a wet wyvern. My guess is that he will throw everything he's got at us, try to breach the gates and cut us down where we stand. My thoughts precisely. I'm going up on the wall to take a look. Have the officers arrange their companies into column, center company leading, line companies to follow. You've got ten minutes and no more. Commander Morgan ran off, shouting for his officers. He issued orders quickly. Soon the drums were beating, the trumpets braying. Sergeants yelled, kicked, and shoved the men into position. Reassured by the familiar sounds that promised discipline and order, the soldiers settled down and reformed into ranks with alacrity. Do we put the barricades back in place, sir? Master Senej asked. Commander Morgan glanced up at the wall where the Baron stood in conference with the Lord Mayor and the city's officers. Morgan shook his head. No, Senej. I think I know what the Baron has planned. Keep them ready just in case, though. During the height of the confusion, Raceland searched for Horkin. At first, Raistlin was unable to find the master in the midst of the tumult, and he began to worry, especially when he heard of the casualties. The gates were swinging shut, and Raistlin had begun to think that dear Looney had abandoned her drinking buddy, when he saw Horkin come lurching through the gate, lending an arm to a fellow soldier with an arrow shaft stuck clean through his leg. The man's pain must have been intense— he could not put his foot to the ground without gasping and shuddering. "'I'm glad to find you, sir,' Raistland said earnestly. He had not known until that moment how much he valued the bluff and gruff Horkin. Raistland added his arm to help share the burden of the wounded man. Between the two of them they carried him to a quiet place beneath the trees, where more wounded had congregated. "'I feared you were among the fallen,' What happened out there? Treachery, Red, said Horkin with a dark glance back out the gate. Treachery and murder. We've been betrayed, there's no doubt about it. As to the why and wherefore, I know nothing. He cast Raistlin a shrewd glance. 
It seems you might know more than I do, Red. The Baron told me that you accompanied him to the mayor's dwelling last night. He said you proved quite useful. I gave an old couple probably the best night's rest they've had in years, Raceland returned dryly, and that was the extent of my service. As to what the Baron and the mayor discussed, I have no more knowledge than yourself. He sent me from the room. Don't take it to heart, Red. That's the Baron all over. The fewer who know a secret, the more likely to keep a secret. That's his motto. One reason he's lived so long. And now, Horkin looked about him, what are we to do with the wounded? I was about to tell you, sir. I believe that I have found a place to shelter the wounded. Did you know that there is an old temple to Paladine in the city, sir? A temple to Paladine? Here? Horkin rubbed his chin. Yes, sir. It's a safe distance from the fighting. If we could commandeer a wagon, we could transport the wounded in that. And why do you think this old temple would be a good place to house our wounded? Horkin asked. I saw the temple last night, sir. It seems, well... Raceland hesitated. It seems a blessed place, sir. It might have been blessed once, Red, Horkin said with a sigh, but not any more. Who can tell, sir, Raceland said in a low voice. You and I both know that one goddess has not left Kryn. Horkin considered. You say it's a safe distance from the fighting. As safe as anything can be, sir, Raceland replied. It must be old. Is it in ruins? It has certainly been neglected, sir. We would need to investigate further, of course, but the building seems to be in fairly good shape. I suppose it can't hurt to go look at it, said Horkin. And who knows? Even if Paladine is long gone, perhaps there is some residual holiness still hanging about. I just hope the roof is sound, he added, glancing skyward. There'll be rain before nightfall. If the roof leaks, we'll find someplace else, blessing or no blessing. Go check your temple out, Red. I'll round up a wagon. Tell Sergeant Nemes to give you an escort. I really don't need anyone, sir, Raceland said. After spending the night dreaming of the temple bathed in silver moonlight, Raistlin was now more convinced than ever that Solinari had drawn the mage's attention to the temple for a reason. Raistlin had no idea what that reason might be. He wanted to enter the temple alone, wanted to open himself to the will of the god. To do that, he needed to be attuned to whatever voice might choose to speak to him. He did not want some loud-mouthed clod stomping about, making crude remarks and offending whatever spirits might linger in the holy place. "'You'll probably want to take your brother with you,' said Horkin. "'No, sir,' Raistland returned emphatically, this being the clod he'd had in mind. The temple was his discovery, belonged to him. He conveniently forgot the fact that it was Caramon who had first seen the temple.' I really don't need anyone. You'll need a good fighter, Red, Horkin said crisply. Never know what you might find lurking about in an old temple. I'll speak to Sergeant Nemes. Perhaps she'll even let you have Scrounger. 
Raistlin gave an inward groan. The gray and lowering clouds which had blanketed the city almost since the day the army had arrived were blown to rags by a strong, chill wind coming down from out of the mountain. The air temperature dropped precipitously, changing from early summer to late fall in a breath. Rain might fall tonight, as Horkin anticipated, but for now bright sunshine, so bright that it seemed newly minted, and crisp fresh air lifted the hearts of those in the besieged city, although that hope dimmed somewhat when they looked over the walls to see the immense army of Commander Kolos marching to attack. The Baron laid out his plan. It was met by dismay from the Lord Mayor and his officers at first, but they were soon persuaded that this was Hope's End's last hope. The Baron left to put his plan into action, as the first black-fletched arrows launched over the walls. The refreshing wind dried the sweat on Caramon's body, and he filled his lungs with it, expanding his muscular chest with each huge breath, much to the admiration of several housewives, who peeped at him from behind closed shutters. Caramon had at first been devastated at having to miss the fighting, but the thought of finding shelter for his wounded comrades somewhat mollified him. Scrounger was pleased with the assignment, figuring he would have been of little use in the upcoming battle anyway. He looked forward to investigating the temple and regaled them with stories of lost and forgotten treasures well known to lie hidden in such places. You don't suppose that someone might have thought to look for treasure in the last three hundred years or so, Raistlin said sarcastically. He was in a bad mood. Everything irritated him, from the change in the weather to the company he was forced to keep. The wind caught at his robes, blew them around his ankles, nearly tripping him. The breeze was chill, set him shivering, and something in the air took him by the throat— made him cough so hard he had to lean against a building until he regained his strength. If there's treasure, there's bound to be a guard on the treasure, Scrounger said in a thrilled whisper. You know what inhabits old temples, don't you? The undead, skeletal warriors, ghouls, maybe even a demon or two. Caramon was starting to look uneasy. Raced, maybe this isn't such a... I promise to deal with any ghouls we meet, Caramon, Raistlin said in a croaking voice. Behind them they could hear the trumpets and the drums and a great shout given by the men of the Baron's army. That's the signal to attack, Caramon said, halting and looking back over his shoulder. Which means that there will be more wounded, said Raistlin with a jab of conscience. Recalling the gravity of their mission, the three increased their pace. There was no further talk of undead or of treasure. Arriving back at the warehouse, they followed the street that led to the temple and easily found the building. Is that the right place? Caramon said, his brow wrinkled. It has to be. Raistlin began to cough. Last night, surrounded by darkness, the temple had seemed a place of awe and mystery. Viewed in the bright light of day, the temple was a disappointment. The columns supporting the roof were cracked. The roof itself sagged. 
The walls were stained and discolored, the courtyard drowning in weeds. Worn out and aching from his coughing fit, chilled to the bone, Raistlin was beginning to regret ever having seen the temple, much less suggesting it as a refuge for the wounded. The building was far more shabby and decrepit than he had imagined. Recalling Horkin's injunction about the leaky roof, Raistlin doubted if there was a roof to the place at all. He could imagine this raw wind blowing a gale through the drafty ruins. It was a mistake to come here, he said. No, it wasn't raced, Caramon said stoutly. There's a good feeling about this place. I like it. We'll have to make sure it's safe first, secure the perimeter. He'd heard Sergeant Nemis use that expression and had been waiting for an opportunity to use it himself. Secure the perimeter, he repeated with a relish. What perimeter? There is no perimeter, Raistlin returned crossly. There is nothing but a dilapidated old building and a weed-covered courtyard. He was extremely disappointed, and he couldn't understand why. What had he expected to find here? The gods? The building looks to be sturdy enough. Solid architecture. I think it must have been built by dwarves, Caramon stated, with all the authority of one who knows absolutely nothing about the matter. It must be solid to stand all these centuries, Scrounger added the voice of practicality. We should at least go check it out, Caramon urged. Raistlin hesitated. Last night Solinari had seemed to point the way, had urged his disciple to come to this once holy place. But that had been at night, in the moonlight, a time when the mind, so stolid and trustworthy during the daylight hours, gives way to its dream side and twists the dark shadows into all varieties of fanciful, frightful forms. Last night the building had seemed so beautiful, safe, blessed. Today there was something sinister about it. He felt very strongly that he should turn away, leave in haste, and never come back. You can stay here in the street where it's safe raced, Caramon said with well-meaning solicitude. Scrounger and I'll go take a look. Raistlin shot his brother a glance that might have been one of the black-fletched arrows. Did I say safe? Caramon went red in the face, as red as if the arrow had pierced his forehead and drawn blood. I meant warm. That's what I meant to say, Raist. I didn't mean... Come along, the two of you, Raistlin snapped. I will take the lead. Caramon opened his mouth to suggest that this was a rash course of action, that he, as the stronger and larger and better armed, should take the lead. At the sight of his brother's tightly drawn lips and glittering eyes, Caramon thought better of the notion and fell meekly into step behind. The courtyard provided no cover. They would be in sight and range of anyone hiding inside the temple. Raistlin was disturbed to see that some of the chickweed growing up through the flagstones was trampled and broken. Someone else had walked across this courtyard, and recently at that. The broken stems were still green, the leaves only starting to wither. Raistlin pointed silently to the evidence that they might not be alone. 
Caramon put his hand to the hilt of his sword. Scrounger drew his knife. The three proceeded across the courtyard, eyes searching, ears pricked to catch the least sound. They heard nothing but the wind sweeping dead leaves into corners, saw nothing but the shadows of high white clouds scuttle across the cracked flagstone. Drawing near the golden doors, Raistlin began to relax. If others had been here, they were gone now. The temple was deserted, he was certain. But on reaching the steps leading up to the temple, Raistlin noted that the golden doors which he had thought were closed actually stood slightly ajar, as if someone inside had opened the doors a crack to peep out at them. Seeing this, Caramon boldly took the lead, placing his body in front of his brothers. Let's look inside, Raist. Drawing his sword, he ran up the stairs, flattened himself with his back against the wall near the door. Scrounger dashed after him, took his place on the opposite side of the door, his knife in his hand. I don't hear anything, he said in a whisper. I don't see anything, Caramon returned. It's dark as the abyss in there. He reached out his hand to press on the door, let in more light. As he did, the sun lifted above the city walls. A beam of sunshine struck the doors at the same time as did Caramon's fingers, making it seem as if his touch was the sun's touch. He burnished the gold, set it shining. In that instant, Raistlin saw the temple not as it was, but as it had been. He gazed in wonder, awed and captivated. The cracks in the marble vanished. The patina of grime and dirt burned away in the light. The temple walls gleamed white. The frieze on the portico, obliterated in anger, was restored. In that frieze was a message, an answer, a solution. Raceland stared at it. He needed only a few seconds to puzzle it out, and he would understand. The world turned on its axis. The sun's dazzling rays were blocked by a guard tower on the wall. The tower's shadow fell across the golden doors. The vision vanished. The temple was as it had been, shabby, neglected, forgotten. Raceland stared hard at the broken frieze, trying to fill in the missing pieces with the remnants of the vision. But he found he could not remember it, like a dream one loses on waking. I'm going inside, Caramon said. He returned his sword to its sheath. Unarmed, Scrounger asked, amazed. It's not proper taking a weapon in there, Caramon replied, his voice deep and solemn. It's not, he fumbled for a word, respectful. But there's nobody left to respect, Scrounger argued. Caramon is right, Raistlin said firmly, to his brother's great astonishment. We don't need weapons here. Put your sword away. Crazy as a kender, they say, Scrounger muttered to himself. Ha! Huh. Kender have nothing on these two. Having no desire to argue with the mage, however, Scrounger slid his knife back into his belt, though he kept his hand on the hilt, and accompanied the brothers inside. 
contrasted with the brightness of the reflected sunlight beating on the gold, the interior of the temple was so dark that for a few moments they could see nothing at all. But as their eyes became accustomed to the change, the darkness receded. The temple's interior seemed brighter than the bright day outside. Fear vanished. No harm could come to them in this place. Raistlin felt the tightness in his chest ease. He breathed more deeply, less painfully. Solinari's promise held true, and Raistlin was more than a little ashamed of having doubted. The wounded could be made quite comfortable here. There was a purity to the air, a softness to the light that had healing qualities. Of that he was convinced. The blessings of the old gods still lingered here, if the gods themselves were gone. This was a really good idea of yours, Raist, said Caramon. Thank you, my brother, Raistlin returned. And, after a pause, he added, I am sorry I was angry with you back there. I know you didn't mean it. Caramon regarded his twin with amazed, marveling awe. He could not recall ever having heard his brother apologize to anyone for anything. He was about to reply when Scrounger motioned him to be quiet. Scrounger pointed to a door, a silver door. I think I heard something, he whispered. Behind that door. Mice, said Caramon, and, putting his hand on the door, he gave it a shove. The door swung open silently, smoothly. Fear flowed from the opening, a black, foul river of dread so strong, so palpable, that Caramon felt it wash over him, try to drown him. He staggered backward, raising his hands as if he were sinking beneath turgid waves. Raistland tried to call out, tried to warn his brother to shut the door, but fear seized him by the throat and squeezed off his voice. The dread rushed into the temple in a dark, crashing wave, submerging the kender part of Scrounger, leaving him a prey to human terror. I... I never felt like this, he whimpered, crouching back against the wall. What's happening? I don't understand. Raistlin did not understand either. He had known fear. Any who take the deadly test in the Tower of High Sorcery know fear. He had known the fear of pain, the fear of death, the fear of failure. He had never felt fear like this. This was a fear that came from far away, a fear born in the distant past, a fear felt by those very first people to walk upon this world, a primeval fear that looked up into the heavens and saw the fiery stars wheeling overhead, saw the sun, a bright and terrible orb of flame, hurtling down upon them. It was the fear of the noisome darkness, when neither stars nor moon were visible, and the wood was wet and would not light, and growls and snarls of unsatiated hunger came from the wilderness. Raistlin wanted to flee, but the fear sucked the strength from his bones, left them soft and pliable as the bones of a newborn child. His brain shot jolts of fire to his muscles. His limbs trembled and jerked in panicked response. 
He clutched at his staff and was astonished to see the crystal atop the staff, the crystal held by the dragon's claw glowing with a strange light. Raistlin had seen the staff glow before. He had only to say Chirac, and the crystal would light the darkness. But he had never seen it glow like this, a light that flared in anger, red around the edges, white at its heart, like the flame of the forge fire. A knight, clad in silver armor of ornate design, appeared in the doorway. The knight wore the symbol of a rose upon his tabard. He held his sword in his gloved hand. He removed the helm he wore, and his eyes looked straight into Raceland's heart, and beyond that, into his soul. Magius, the knight said, I require your help to save that which must not perish from the world. I am not Magius, Raceland answered, constrained by the knight's noble aspect and mean to tell the truth. You bear his staff, said the knight, the fabled staff of Magius. A gift, Raceland said, lowering his head. Yet he could still feel the eyes of the knight delving the depths of his being. Truly a valuable gift, said the knight. Are you worthy of it? I... Don't know, Raistland replied in confusion. An honest answer, said the knight, and he smiled. Find out. Aid me in my cause. I am afraid, Raistland gasped, holding up his hand to ward off the terror. I cannot do anything to help you or anyone. Overcome your fear, said the knight. If you do not, you will walk in fear the rest of your life. The light from the crystal blazed brilliant as a lightning bolt. Raistlin was forced to shut his eyes against the painful glare lest it blind him. When he opened his eyes, the night was gone as if he had never been. The silver doors stood open, and death lay beyond. You had courage enough to pass the test, said an inner voice. Courage enough to kill my own brother, Raistlin answered. Parsalian and Antimides and all the rest might view Raistlin with contempt, but they could never match the contempt with which he viewed himself. Bitter self-recrimination tagged always at his heels. Self-loathing was his constant shadow. Courage enough to kill Caramon when he came to rescue me. Kill him as he stood before me, helpless, unarmed, disarmed by his love for me. That is my sort of courage, Raistland said. You will walk in fear the rest of your life. No, said Raistland. I won't. Refusing to allow himself to think what he was doing, he lifted the staff of Magius, and holding its shining light above him, he walked through the silver doors into darkness. Chapter 18 Caramon had never experienced such fear. Not during that terrible and hopeless attack on the city, not when the arrows thudded into his shield, not when the boulders smashed into his comrades, changing them from living men into bloody pulp and bone slivers. His fear then had been gut-wrenching, but not debilitating. His training and his discipline had carried him through. This fear was different. It didn't wrench the gut. 
it reduced the gut to water. It didn't galvanize the body to action. It wrung the body, left it limp as a bar rag. Caramon had one thought in his mind, and that was to run as fast as he could away from this place, away from the unknown evil that flowed out of the silver door in a chill and sickening wave. He didn't know what was down there. He didn't want to know what was down there. Whatever it was, it was not meant for mortals to encounter. Caramon watched with a horror that left him breathless and gasping, watched his brother cross that awful threshold. Raced! Don't! Caramon cried, but the cry came out a pitiful wail, like that of a frightened child. If Raistlin heard him, he did not turn back. Caramon wondered what dark force had seized hold of his brother, caused him to enter that place of certain death. In answer, Caramon heard a voice, faint and distant, calling for aid. An armored knight stood in the doorway. Reminded fondly of Sturm, Caramon would have been glad to go with the knight, but for this strange and horrible fear that had him groveling on the floor of the temple in a panic. But that changed when Raistlin entered the darkness. Caramon had no choice but to go after him. Fear for his brother's life was like a fire in his brain and blood, burned away the sickening, unnameable fear. Sword drawn, he ran through the silver door into the corridor after his brother. Left behind, Scrounger stared, disbelieving. His friend, his best friend, and his friend's twin had just walked into death. Fools, Scrounger pronounced them. You're both crazy. His teeth chattered. He could barely speak. Pressed flat against the wall by his own terror, he tried to take a step toward that dark entrance, but his feet wouldn't obey what was admittedly a feeble command. Where, oh where, was the kender side of him now that he needed it? All his life he had fought against that part of himself, slapped back the fingers that itched to touch, to handle, to take, fought against the wanderlust that tempted him to leave his honest work and go skipping down an untraveled road. Now, when his mother's kender fearlessness, a fearlessness that had nothing to do with courage and everything to do with curiosity, might have stood him in good stead, he searched for it and found it wanting. His mother would have said it served him right. Scrounger wasn't in the temple any longer. He was a little child standing with his mother outside a cave they'd stumbled across during one of their many rambles. Aren't you curious to know what's in there, she asked him. Don't you wonder what's inside? Maybe a dragon's treasure hoard, or a sorcerer's workshop. Maybe a princess who needs rescuing. Don't you want to find out? No, Scrounger wailed. I don't want to go in. It's dark and horrible, and it smells bad. You're no child of mine, his mother said, not angrily, but fondly. She patted his head. She went into the cave, came dashing out about three minutes later with a giant bugbear in hot pursuit. Scrounger remembered that moment, remembered the bugbear, the first one he'd ever seen and the last one he ever wanted to see, remembered his mother herring out of that cave, her clothes in wild disorder, her pouches flapping open, 
spilling their contents, her face red with exertion, her grin wide. She caught Scrounger by the hand. They ran for their lives. Fortunately, the bugbear didn't have any staying power. It soon gave up the chase. But Scrounger had determined in that moment that his mother was right. He was no child of hers, and he didn't want to be. I know what I'll do, said Scrounger to himself. I'll go back to the army. I'll get reinforcements. At that moment, a large hand reached out from the silver door, grabbed hold of Scrounger's shoulder, yanked him off his feet, and pulled him inside. Cripes, Caramon, you scared me half to death. What did you do that for? Scrounger demanded when he could feel his heart start to beat again. Because I need your help to find Raced, Caramon said grimly. You were running away. I was g g going to g get help, Scrounger said through the chattering of his teeth. You're not supposed to be scared. Caramon glared at the trembling Scrounger. What kind of kender are you? Half kender, Scrounger retorted. The smart half. Now that he was here, he supposed he had to make the best of it. Anyway, he was too scared to go back alone. Is it all right with you if I draw my sword now? Or would that be disrespectful to whatever is down here that's going to murder us and chop up our bodies into little pieces and suck out our souls? I think drawing your sword would be a wise move, Caramon replied gravely. They stood inside a tunnel that had been carved through the rock. The tunnel walls were smooth and formed an arch above them. The floor sloped slightly downward. The tunnel did not appear as dark once they'd entered it as it had seemed from outside. Sunlight reflecting off the silver door lit their way for a considerable distance, far longer than either would have imagined was possible. But there was no sign of Raistlin. They kept going. The tunnel made a sharp curve. Coming around the corner, they saw ahead of them a shining light, brilliant as a star. Raced, Caramon called softly. The light wavered, halted. Raceland turned, and they could see his face, the skin glistening faintly gold in the light cast by the staff of Magius. He beckoned. Caramon hurried ahead, Scrounger at his heels, close at his heels. Raceland's hand closed over his brother's arm, clasped Caramon warmly. I'm glad you are here, my brother, he said earnestly. Well, I'm not glad to be here, Caramon said in a low voice. He looked nervously to the left, to the right, ahead and behind. I don't like this place, and I think we should leave. Something down here doesn't want us down here. Remember what Scrounger said about ghouls? I tell you, Raced, I've never been so scared in my life. I only came to find you and the night. What night? Scrounger demanded. So you saw him too, Raistlin murmured. What night? Scrounger persisted. Raistlin did not answer immediately. When he did reply, he said only, Come with me, both of you. There's something I want to show you. Raist, I don't think... Caramon began. The mountain shook. The tunnel shuddered. The floor trembled. The three fell back against the tunnel walls, almost too startled to be frightened. 
rock dust sifted down on their heads, but before the realization came to them that they were in danger of being buried beneath the mountain, the shaking ceased. That does it, Caramon said. We're getting out of here. A minor tremor. These mountains are subject to them, I believe. Did the knight say anything to you? He said he needed help. Look, Raced, I... Caramon paused, regarded his brother anxiously. Are you all right? Raceland was choking on the rock dust, which had flown down his throat. He shook his head at the inanity of the question. No, I'm not all right, he gasped when he could speak. But I will be better in a moment. Let's leave, Caramon said. You shouldn't be down here. The dust is bad for you. It's bad for me, too, said Scrounger. They both stood there, waiting for Raistlin. When he could breathe, he looked back toward the silver door, then ahead. Do what you want. But I am going to go on. We could not bring wounded into the temple without knowing that it is completely safe. Besides, I'm curious to know what lies ahead. Probably my poor mother's last words, Scrounger said gloomily. Caramon shook his head, but he followed after his twin. Scrounger waited, still thinking he would take the mage up on his offer and run away. He waited until the comforting light of the mage's staff had almost vanished. Only when the darkness started to close over him did he race to catch up with the light. The smooth tunnel walls gave way to natural rock. The path was uneven, more difficult to follow. It wound about among the stalagmites, led them from one cavern room into another and always down, down, deep into the mountain. And then it ended abruptly in a cul-de-sac. A wall of rock blocked their way. All this for nothing, said Caramon. Well... At least we know it's safe. Let's go back. Raceland shone the light on the wall, soon discovered the alcove with the gate made of silver and gold. He looked through the gate into a small, round chamber. Caramon peered over his shoulder. The chamber was empty except for a sarcophagus located in the very center of the oval room. Raced, this is a tomb, Caramon said uneasily. How very observant of you, Caramon, Raistlin returned. Ignoring his brother's pleas, he pushed open the gate. The light of the staff of Magius shone with a bright silver radiance as he entered the chamber. He raised the staff so that the light fell on the sarcophagus, illuminated the stone figure carved on the top. Raistlin stood staring in silence. Look at this, my brother, he said at last, his voice soft, awed. What do you see? A tomb, said Caramon nervously. He came to a standstill under the arch, his big body blocking the way. Behind him, Scrounger had no intention of being left alone in the tunnel. He shoved his way past the big man, wormed his way inside. Look at the tomb, Caramon, Raistlin persisted. What do you see? A night, I guess. It's hard to tell. There's so much dust. Caramon averted his eyes. He had just noticed that the lid of the sarcophagus was open. 
Raced, we shouldn't be here. It's not right. Raistlin paid no heed to his brother. Approaching the sarcophagus, he peered inside the open lid. He stopped, stared, drew back slightly. I knew it! Caramon gripped his sword so hard his hand ached. Raistlin beckoned. Come here, my brother. You should see this. No, I shouldn't, Caramon said firmly, shaking his head. I said, come look at this, Caramon, Raistlin's voice rasped. Shambling, reluctant, Caramon edged his way forward. Scrounger came with him, holding on to his sword with one hand and Caramon's belt loop with the other. Caramon sneaked a quick look inside the tomb, looked quickly away before he had a chance to see anything horrible, like a moldy skeleton with bits of flesh hanging off the bones. Startled by what he saw, he looked back. The knight, Caramon breathed. The knight who called to me. A body lay in the tomb, a body clad in ancient armor that gleamed in the light of the staff of Magius. A soft light shed down upon the knight with loving grace. The knight wore a helm made in a style that had been popular before the cataclysm. He wore a tabard over his armor. The tabard's fabric was old, yellowed. The embroidered satin rose that adorned it was worn and faded. The knight clasped the hilt of a sword in his hands. Dried rose petals surrounded the knight's body, lay scattered over the tabard and the shining sword. A sweet fragrance of roses lingered in the air. I thought I recognized the cavern figure on the tomb, Raistland said thoughtfully. The armor, the tabard, the helm, all exactly like those worn by the knight who came to ask us to aid him. A knight who has been dead perhaps hundreds of years. Don't say things like that, Scrounger pleaded, his voice a squeak. This place is spooky enough as it is. Wouldn't this be a good time to go? Looking at the knight lying in his tomb, Caramon was again reminded of his friend Sturm. The reminder was not a happy one. Caramon hoped it wasn't an omen. He began to brush away some of the dust from the still stone figure carved upon the lid. Raistlin stood gazing upon the knight, resting in a peace and tranquility that the young mage, who suffered the constant burning in his lungs and the more painful burning of his own ambitions, momentarily envied. Look at this, Raist, Caramon marveled. There's an inscription. Brushing aside the dust, he uncovered a small plaque made of bronze that had been set into the stone above the knight's heart. I can't read it, Caramon said, twisting his head at an odd angle to see. It's in Salamnic, Raistlin said, recognizing immediately the language he'd been wrestling for months, ever since receiving the book describing the staff of Magius. It says... He brushed aside more dust and read aloud. Here lies one who died defending the temple of Paladine and its servants from the faithless and the forlorn. By the knight's last request made with his dying breath, we bury him in this chamber so that he may continue to stand watch over the precious treasure, which it is our duty and our privilege to guard. Paladine grant him rest when his duty is fulfilled. All three looked at one another. 
All three repeated the same word at the same time. Treasure. Caramon looked about the chamber as if he expected to see chests spilling out coins and jewels. Scrounger was right. Does it say where the treasure is, Raced? Raceland continued to brush away dust, but there was nothing more to be read. It's funny, but I'm not the least bit scared anymore, Scrounger announced. I wouldn't mind exploring. It wouldn't hurt to look around, said Caramon, bending down to try to peer underneath the tomb. He was disappointed to find it set solidly into the cavern floor. What do you say, Raced? Raceland was sorely tempted. The strange and unreasoning fear he'd experienced was gone. He had a responsibility to the wounded, but as he had said before, he had a responsibility to make certain that the temple was safe. If he happened to come across a treasure chest while doing so, no one could fault him. What would you do if we found a treasure, Caramon? Scrounger asked. I'd buy an inn, Caramon said. You'd be your own best customer, Scrounger laughed. I would do only good if a treasure came into my possession, Raceland thought. I would move to Palanthus and purchase the largest house in the city. I would have servants to wait on me and to work in my laboratory, which would be the largest and finest money could buy. I would purchase every spellbook in every mageware shop from here to northern Urgoth. I would start a library that would rival the library in the Tower of High Sorcery. I would buy magical artifacts and magical gems and wands and potions and scrolls. He saw himself rich, powerful, beloved, feared. Saw himself quite clearly. He stood in a tower, dark, foreboding, surrounded by death. He wore black robes around his neck, a pendant of green stone streaked with blood. Look what I found, Scrounger called out excitedly, pointing. Another gate. Raistlin only half heard him. The image of himself was slow to dissolve. When it finally faded away, it left a disquieting feeling behind. Scrounger stood beside a wrought iron gate, his face pressed against the bars, staring into the darkness beyond. It leads into another tunnel, he reported. Maybe it's the tunnel where the treasure is. We've found it, raised, Caramon said exultantly, crowding behind Scrounger, looking out over his head. I know we've found it. Bring your light over here. I don't suppose it would hurt to take a look, Raistlin said. Move away from there. Give me room to see what I'm doing. Don't touch the gate, Caramon. It might be magically trapped. Let me look at it. Caramon and Scrounger dutifully stepped back. Raistlin approached the gate. He could sense magical power, immense magical power. But not from the gate. The power lay beyond. Magical artifacts, perhaps. Artifacts from hundreds of years ago, before the cataclysm. Lying undisturbed all this time, waiting, waiting. He turned the handle. The iron gate creaked open. Raistland took one step into the darkness beyond, only to find a shadowy form blocking his way. Chirac. He lifted the staff to see what it was. 
The staff's white light gleamed red in the burning eyes of Immolatus. Chapter 19 The wizard's eyes burned red, fed from the fire of hatred and frustration that still roared in his belly and that could find no outlet in this accursed body. The heat of the flames radiated from his flesh. He had lost considerable blood from the wound in his side. Each breath he drew was agony. His head ached and throbbed. These weaknesses, a plague to his weak human form, would disappear once he regained his splendid, strong, and powerful dragon form. Once he was out of this accursed building, he would make them pay, make them all pay. Finding his way blocked, Immolatus lifted his gaze and focused on a bright light which pierced his aching eyes like a steel lance. He glared at the light, furious, and then he saw its source. The staff of Magius, Immolatus cried with a grinding glee. I'll have something from this misadventure after all. Reaching out his hand, the dragon plucked the staff from Raistland's grasp, and with the other hand, he struck the young man a blow that sent him sprawling to the stone floor. Kitiara had trailed Immolatus through the cavern's corridors. When he stopped at the entrance to the burial chamber, Kitiara crept forward, sword drawn, planning to attack the wizard in the burial chamber, where she had room to swing her sword. Unexpectedly, Immolatus stopped before entering the gate, shouting something about a staff. He sounded pleased, exultant, as if he'd just stumbled across a long-lost companion. Fearful that the dragon had found a friend and that he might yet escape her, Kitiara looked past Immolatus' shoulder to see what new foe she might face. Caramon. Paralyzed with amazement, Kitiara at first doubted her senses. Caramon was safely back in solace, not wandering about caverns in Hope's End. But there was no mistaking those massive shoulders, the ham-fisted hands, the curly hair, and that gaping expression of dumbfounded astonishment. Caramon, here! She was so lost in startlement that she barely paid attention to his companions, a red-robed wizard and a kenderish-looking fellow. Kit paid little attention to them. The sight of her brother wearing the armor of the Baron— the enemy, no less, brought such confused thoughts to her that she lowered her sword and retreated a safe distance back down the corridor to consider how to deal with this bizarre situation. One thought was uppermost in her mind. Now was not the time for a family reunion. <laughs>